what we did show was that people who reported using skunk uh, and particularly using skunk every day had up to a fivefold increase in the probability of uh, suffering a first episode of psychosis compared to people who were not using cannabis or had never used cannabis. I'm Doug Bobes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to the episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Marta DeForti who's a clinical reader in psychosis research at the Department of Social, Developmental, and Genetic Research at King's College of London. She leads the first cannabis clinic for patients with psychotic disorders in the UK. In 2021, she was awarded the Royal College of Psychiatrists Researcher of the Year Prize. In 2020, she was granted an MRC Senior Research Fellowship to expand her research in the role of cannabis use in psychosis and its underlying biology. Today on the show, we discuss why cannabis is more dangerous than ever today, what Marta's research reveals about the link between cannabis and psychosis, the risk factors for developing psychosis, and the role that your age plays in this, why edibles can lead to an overdose, how to recover from psychosis and cannabis addiction, does the dosage actually make the poison, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Dr. Marta DeForti to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Marta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'd love to get right into it. You do a ton of research on marijuana, psychosis, the brain. Why has marijuana become so dangerous in today's society? Well, this is a, an important question that I bump into almost accidentally when I was doing my PhD in uh, around 2008 up to 2012 when I started collecting data and I should say, uh, in South London, which is where I work both as a clinician and an academic. And we were running a study of uh, young adults experiencing psychosis for the first time, and also a group of healthy volunteers from the same geographical area. And so it was a classic case control study. And my role in this study was to collect a detailed cannabis history. And for the first time in this type of study, to actually ask people, what type of cannabis they were using. And it was a good time because the Home Office in UK in 2008, so when I was just about in the middle of this data collection, decided to do the first potency study. So they wanted to see if the concentration, particularly of THC, Delta 9, tetrahydrocannabinol, and CBD cannabidiol in the type of cannabis available on the streets of London around that time have changed compared to early early 2000. And two papers came out at that time that began to suggest that the potency of herbal cannabis that in London we will call skunk because of the strong smell coming out of it um, was actually steadily increasing. And it was around 60% THC uh, plus minus a standard deviation of 48 and the other important thing is that the concentration of CBD was declining and it was in some of these skunk samples almost undetectable. And that was very interesting to me because when then I got to analyze my data that represented people using cannabis at the time when this potency study has been carried out, what we did show was that people who reported using skunk uh, and particularly using skunk every day had up to a five-fold increase in the probability of uh, suffering a first episode of psychosis compared to people who were not using cannabis or had never used cannabis, I should say. But also, this risk of the skunk daily users was strikingly higher as well of people that at the time had been using hash or raisin. And this was important because the same home office study had shown that the raising around that time in London was actually a quite a low concentration of THC, around 4 to 4.5%, and that he had an equal ratio of CBD. So you had the same amount of THC and CBD. 
And so in our data almost mirrored how when people reported using hash had a very different risk profile in terms of the chances of developing psychosis compared to the skunk users. Even when you control for all other possible drugs associated with psychosis and many other social environmental risk factors that we know are associated with psychosis. And we also looked at the background role of the genetic of uh, uh, schizophrenia. And even when we took that into account, you still had an independent effect or what we started calling high-potency cannabis, uh, especially in frequent users. So would you say that the massive increase in mental health problems caused by cannabis, and when I say cannabis, I'm talking about specifically marijuana, would you say that the, the main culprit in that is this higher potency of, of THC, or, or is it marijuana in itself? Well, I think it's a difficult question to answer because... We think that we know everything about, you call it marijuana in the state, we call it cannabis. And we, I think in this case, we intend the same thing. But we tend to think that cannabis starts and ends with THC and CBD. But actually, we now know that there are at least 144 compounds. People also talk about the entourage effect, uh, which is down to other compounds, which are no uh, cannabinoids, but terpenes. And I think... There is very little research, including for my group, from my group or other group in the States that have actually done the same level of research associated with THC and CBD with these other compounds. So what I can tell you is that certainly I think the increase in concentration of THC and the decline of CBD has contributed in the increase of uh, psychotic-like effects associated with cannabis, because we do know from people like uh, Cyril, Professor Cyril de Souza from Yale, and people from uh, from UK like uh, Amir Anglund, Paul Morrison, and Philip Maguire, that if you give intravenous or even you get to inhale. Uh, THC to healthy volunteers, you can provoke psychosis. I mean, you and I probably, uh, uh, if we were exposed to intravenous or, or certain concentration of THC, we would develop transient paranoia and uh, potentially even auditory hallucination, which are characteristic symptoms of psychosis. So we do know that THC is associated with that. But we do not know, for instance, if Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol, which is different from Delta-9, that is the classic THC, in certain concentration can produce exactly the same level of psychosis. We do not know if other cannabinoids like THCV would also do that, and many others, which I'm not even going to name. And what is the balance between all these cannabinoids in the samples that people buy both from legal places, like more likely to be in the States, or from the drug dealer, uh, which is more likely to be the case still in, in, in UK. So I think there is more than we need to know than what we do know. So what I'm hearing you say is the is CBD kind of acts like a buffer, I guess, for the THC to limit the, psych, the potential psychosis effects that it could have in somebody. And with that said, from what I understand in the States, there's a lot of people that aren't even like smoking the plant or the flower anymore. It's more being ingested via edibles or I think it's called dabbing or just, you know, just, just in a, in a more of a, like a liquid form. Do you think that the method in which people are consuming cannabis is, is having a direct impact on how that impacts them from a, from a psychological perspective as well? We this is uh, something that I'm learning from colleagues from the states because we still and when I say we I mean UK and Europe we're still mostly a population that will smoke cannabis in a joint and often still with with tobacco. I think uh, vapors and vaporizer or pure THC product are coming our way, but they are still sort of pretty pretty rare. Uh, but I do know from colleagues in the States, both clinicians and academics, that, for instance, um, they tend to see more and more in, in accident and emergency young people coming with severe psychosis or so even other adverse effects such as hyperemesis or so what they sort of have an uncontrollable vomiting. And this is more likely to be associated with uh, vaping high concentration of THC or edibles. And one of the problems with edibles is that if you inhale 
cannabis, either that you smoke it or you vape it, the bioavailability to the brain is pretty quick. So you get the high quite quick, so you know you're getting it. With edibles, it's much slower. So people are more likely to overdose because they might get a bit of a cookie or even a, a jelly. They don't feel anything and said, oh, well, this is not working. And they take more and they take more. And by sort of a couple of hours, they actually overdose. So they ingest probably four times the amount of THC they were used to uh, consume when they were inhaling it, smoking it or, or vaping it. From, from a psychosis pers- um, perspective specifically, like what factor does age play into it? Because I think you did a, a study and it was something along the lines of like daily use, especially high potency cannabis drives the earlier onset of, of uh, psychosis and cannabis users. Was that study something that you did around like young adults? Because I've heard that people who have underdeveloped brains that cannabis can impact them psychologically much more severely. Actually, it doesn't necessarily address the question you're asking me, which is very important. The study we did was more about when you have young adults who develop psychosis for the first time, if you compare the one who have been using cannabis uh, from adolescence compared to the one that never used, the one who had been using cannabis, they developed the psychosis at least six years younger, which has a huge impact on their prognosis, so in the chances to recover. But if we go back to the question in general, does the developing brain exposed to cannabis is more likely to uh, suffer sort of a a variety of adverse outcome? And I I know in one of your future podcasts, you'll be uh, uh, working with Yasmin Hurd. So Yasmin, for instance, has shown that exposing prenatally uh, the, the brain to cannabinoids. So say you have a mom who's using cannabis because they have nausea in pregnancy. Sadly, a very common occurrence these days, uh, you are more likely to, to see that the child would develop neurodevelopmental problems. So more likely to develop autistic traits or even get diagnosis of uh, uh, autism spectrum disorder uh, or ADHD, so attention deficit and hyperactivity and a variety of cognitive difficulties. In relation to psychosis, what we do know is that longitudinal studies have shown that using cannabis younger than 15 uh, is more likely to be associated with psychosis than if you start using cannabis, say, when you are 18. What we do not know, and this is a very important question for people who are accessing cannabis for medicinal purposes, for instance, say they are prescribed cannabis for pain or for other medical condition. Uh, for nausea because of chemotherapy, what we do not know, say you are 35 or say you are 50 and you are prescribed medicinal cannabis, what is your risk of developing psychosis? Has it declined because of your age? Um, This is an important question because we do know that naturally with age, dopamine production declines. So the risk of psychosis, even if you forget cannabis for a moment, declines over time with age. And so... What you might sort of speculate is that perhaps any risk factors which precipitate psychosis by affecting the dopamine system might might play a less important role with aging. But we don't know because most of the research has been done on adolescents, on on, uh, pre-born baby and on young adults. We don't know any large studies that look at people who started using cannabis later in life. And so this is just a speculation. And with the study that we are running now, the Cannabis and Me study, we are actually, and we decided intentionally not to have a, a, a top um, cutoff to the age range of recruitment. So we are getting anybody 18 and above. Uh, we're, we're collecting data from people who started using cannabis later in life. And, it, and we are measuring in them paranoia to see if the sensitivity to develop paranoia in the context of cannabis use it is indeed age dependent and uh, and try and understand why why they might be you mentioned that dopamine is is like one of the major mechanisms that can drive i guess psychosis and that as our dopamine levels go down our risk of psychosis goes down um as well what are some other like risk factors that you've seen you mentioned that in some of the studies you've done you've looked at genetics you've looked at like lifestyle and environment and stuff like that what have you seen to be major risk factors for people that tend to develop psychosis outside of just using cannabis specifically? So 
in the people I, I, I see, and I don't go and look for them, it's just the parts of London where I work, cannabis is overwhelming the most common, but by all means, he doesn't act on his own. For instance, one of my PhD students and colleagues, she's a psychiatrist as well, she's been very interested in trauma and particularly in childhood trauma. And she has really analysed, and I can send you the paper because it's just come out, nine different subtypes of trauma. So she has looked at uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, so emotional neglect, uh, bullying. And she has explored the relationship with psychosis. And also she has explored the relationship with trauma and psychosis, sorry, with cannabis and psychosis. So what she finds is that all these different subtypes of trauma, which happens in childhood and particularly before age 11, do increase uh, the, 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 the odds ratio, the probability of uh, these children later on uh, to develop a psychotic disorder. And uh, uh, for, uh, for those who also use uh, cannabis in adolescence, cannabis seems to mediate the association between uh, early trauma and later cannabis use, meaning that for a proportion of them, some of the risk uh, of the trauma is actually explained by them also using cannabis. And if you think about this, it is not different from any other uh, psychiatric but complex condition in medicine. Say, for instance, diabetes type 2. I mean, we all sort of know that uh, obesity is a risk factor for diabetes type 2. But we also know that if on top of gaining weight, you add genetic predisposition to diabetes, say you have a family history of it, and then you add not doing any, any exercise and you're not only overweight, but you have a particularly high dieting in, uh, in uh, unrefined sugar, you know, all of these will add up to your risk of developing type 2 uh, diabetes and it's the same for psychosis. So we know that obstetric complication and particularly hypoxia at, at the time of birth is a risk factor. Infection at the third trimester when you are still in your mummy tummy are a big risk factor. So any anybody that perturbates the development of the brain. We know that other drugs, methamphetamine in particular, but stimulants, hallucinogenic are risk factors. We know that um, social disadvantage so people who experience a combination of factors which we cluster under social disadvantage, so poverty, discrimination, uh, persistent unemployment combined to low level of education are more likely to, to develop psychosis. Trauma early in life, but also traumatic life events uh, later in life. I mean, you can imagine that if you live in a neighborhood where you have been exposed to violence every, every other day, you come out of your house to go shopping it is not very unlikely that you begin to develop, become paranoid and it might even be a healthy response to uh, to, to your environment. We, we do know uh, that for women, giving birth can be a precip precipitating factor for psychosis. Puerperal psychosis is one of the worst and most severe type of psychosis you would ever see. And we do know that in women, again, menopause is a time where women suffer the second peak of, uh, of psychosis, which is why it worries me when I hear that women in menopause are recommended to smoke cannabis to feel better or to relieve the symptoms of menopause. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think first, how do you define psychosis or symptoms of psychosis? Because based on what I've read, I'm like, I think during my days where I was using and abusing a lot of drugs, I experienced some symptoms of psychosis, the heavy paranoia and stuff like that. And I think that that word psychosis can often be stigmatized because then I think people think that if they're experiencing that, there, there must be something wrong with them or they, must be, they might be crazy or whatever other stigmatizing things have been said. So how do you define psychosis? So first of all, it's important what you said, you mentioned the word stigma. Psychosis per se is a cluster of experiences which are distributed in a continuum. So the the some of the psychotic experience like becoming suspicious, uh, feeling particularly aware of the environment around you, what we call salience. So beginning to attribute meaning to things that would be otherwise sort of neutral and meaningless. Hearing voices 
or, or, or sounds that other people will not hear or even seeing things that other people can uh, cannot hear or having a sort of uh, changes in mood and uh, uh, an elation and experience of, of sort of grandiosity. Uh, these are actually experiences which are present in the general population. Up of 13 people in the general population, these are studied mostly mostly conducted in Europe and in North America show that people like have an experience of hearing voices that other people can't hear. And 9% of the population does have ideas or reference, which are a, 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 a dimension of paranoia. Ideas of reference says what it is, that you, you believe that most of the things around you are referential to you. So I'm talking to you, I can hear some noise coming from my window. That's not a neutral uncoincidental event. I believe that it's actually somebody in the street perhaps trying to tell me that what I'm saying is uh, stupid or, or, or they disagree with my view on cannabis. And so beginning to make up a story about that. 9% of the population would be on a dimension of, uh, of paranoia. When, when do we move from these experiences, either because you are intoxicated with a drug or because you're going through a stressful period or because of the environment when you leave, into a clinical condition. Well, the transition is where all these experiences interfere with your ability to function in the way you want. When they interfere with your ability to look after yourself, to, to get on with what is relevant to you, your work, your relationship, that's when you, you, you go over a threshold. It's not having these experiences that define a disease. It's the degree, the intensity, the persistence, and the intrusiveness of this experience that sort of makes you go over a threshold of required support. And we psychiatrists don't go and seek for patients. They usually come to us because either they acknowledge to need help and these experiences are overwhelming and uncomfortable, or because the loved one or other circumstances bring them to, uh, you know, to our attention. There is another component of psychosis, of clinical psychosis that I haven't mentioned, and it's the cognitive function. Now, independently of cannabis, but we can talk about cannabis as well, all the studies that have looked at people that then develop a clinical psychosis and they've monitored children from birth, so these are birth court, to the time of the psychosis onset, have noticed that children who then develop psychosis later on tend to have on average a lower IQ than the general population. And particularly, there are some domains of IQ, such as uh, a dimension of, uh, of memory, of, of executive functioning, which is that part of the brain that allow us to formulate and, and develop plans into action. Um, and so there is also a cognitive dimension. Some people with psychosis also have what we call negative symptoms, which is uh, a tendency to isolate, to withdraw from social from social contact, and to be less interested in activities. Sometimes this is primary. I have to say, I think that's quite rare as a primary. More often, is secondary to the paranoid experience. I mean, if you're paranoid and you think that the environment around out there is adverse and threatening, you're less likely to want to go and mix with the rest of, of the population and sometimes even with your loved ones. Like, as far as like, I mean, if somebody might be listening to this or they're watching this, they're a parent, they're trying to like be more mindful of what their kids are doing. Like, are the, Is there a certain amount of cannabis that when it's consumed, it can certainly, you've seen in research, like cause psychosis or is it dependent upon each individual? Well, studies... Like including the one I've been involved in, they look at groups. They don't look at an individual level. So in the study we have carried out, we've shown that type of cannabis with a THC equal or greater than 10% are likely to significantly increase the odds of developing a psychotic disorder. But again, there are people out there who would consume less than that and develop psychosis, as well as there is a majority that will use more concentrated types and might not develop a clinical condition. So what I usually say, so in my clinic, I do this at an, at an individual basis. So we haven't yet developed like for alcohol unit. So in alcohol, you can, again, although this, the unit refer to the general population, uh, you can say, well, you know, this is the amount of units that in general is safe to use depending from age and gender to prevent liver disease and, 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 and liver cirrhosis. 
And now we also know that even units are not perfect. So one, we cannabis, we're far away from, from getting to units. There's some work, and I can give you some names of people they are leading on their work to define the minimum amount of cannabis, which is a safe use in terms of THC alone, which will compare potentially an alcohol unit. But we don't really know that yet. I normally say to people, you can try. So with my with my patients who have become psychotic in the context of cannabis use and who are very keen on not giving up cannabis completely, we do what you call harm reduction. So they they steadily reduce until they get to a point where we do see an improvement in the psychotic symptoms, but they can continue to get some of the pleasurable effects that they are seeking from cannabis. And this is an extraordinary individual journey. And I can give you the example of a gentleman who had been using nine joints of uh, skunk for an equivalent of probably 12 grams a week for 20 years and then start, you know, went in and out of hospital uh, over this, uh, these 20 years, 15 times under a compulsory admission. And the last time he was discharged with his family, he decided he wanted to try and make a change to his cannabis use. And he agreed to, to go down to three joints a day. And, you know, three joints a day can be a huge amount for some people. But for him, because of his previous use, his level of tolerance, they were enough to keep him away from psychosis and functioning. There are some people for whom half a joint might be enough. And I'm an example of that, not in relation to cannabis, but of alcohol doesn't matter how much I drink, I get very sick because I have a genetic mutation, which is the alcohol dehydrogenase mutation that people from the Far East tend to have, which makes for me alcohol very toxic. So I don't enjoy even a shandy or, or, or a very low uh, alcohol concentration drink because I will get sick, headache and vomit. So no much benefit for me to drink. So you can imagine that in cannabis, there are people for like me, for whom even a small amount of THC can trigger unpleasant psychosis. And there may be people for whom this is a very high concentration. And there might be people that don't develop psychosis at all. It doesn't matter how much cannabis they take. So you mentioned your clinic and you mentioned that people come to your clinic who have developed psychosis because of cannabis. As that relates to somebody who's trying to either come off of cannabis or let's just say that they've experienced some of these symptoms that you've talked about, What's the recovery process like to, you know, is, is, is psychosis and what you're talking about, is it reversible? And if so, like, how do you go about helping your patients overcome that? So that's a wonderful story because even before we get to my clinic, which is why I was able to develop it, because we had this evidence, we did know that if, and there've been meta-analysis, many longitudinal studies showing this, that if you develop psychosis, and you continue to use cannabis following the onset of your psychosis, your clinical and functional outcome, which means the persistent severity reoccurrence of your psychotic symptoms is much worse than the people that stop using cannabis. And also your ability to return to things relevant to you, job, relationship, studying, and so on. So we do know that if you take cannabis out of the equation, you can really make a huge uh, impact on the outcome of these young adults. So on the basis of this, we thought to develop this service where if people were willing to engage with us, we could support them in reducing or stopping their cannabis use. And what we have found so far, and we are at the beginning of, of developing our service, is that you know 80% of people are actually able to completely stop using their cannabis and 20% go down from daily use perhaps to just a weekend social use. And for all of them, you have a significant reduction in psychotic dimensions, so both what we talked about, so ideas, so paranoid dimension as well as auditory hallucination experience, although those are less common, but very importantly, level of functioning. So we had that the striking majority of them went back to paid employment, uh, a proportion of them went back to voluntary work and the youngest group went back to, to education. And they were also much more able to look after themselves and, and, and regain independent functioning. And this was within a short period of time. This didn't take a decade. Uh, our work spans around a 20 plus weeks or one-to-one -one weekly session. And so we saw these positive outcomes on average after three months of working with us 
and uh, some of these people were discharged from mental health services back to their primary care work. So uh, I think what is very important is that there are risk factors for psychosis you cannot reverse. You cannot reverse obstetric complication. You cannot cancel out trauma. You can, of course, do therapy to uh, to to uh, elaborate and 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 uh, overcome some of the consequences of your trauma. But you can reduce or stop your cannabis use. And we do know that that has a powerful effect on the outcome of psychosis, which is why I, I feel with my colleagues very passionate about giving these people a chance to see it for themselves. So I, I'm not there to tell them this is going to happen. It's for them to work it out with time that they, they do experience a change in the way they feel and in the way of they can achieve what is relevant to them. So taking a step back, and you mentioned that we can't reverse some of these risk factors that led to psychosis or led to people using you know cannabis in the first place and that sort of thing. I think a lot of times people go into a place like yours or they'll go into treatment and everything will be good when they're there, but then they get out and then it's back into society. And now they have to deal with maybe the same environment or a lot of the, the, the things that were potentially causing them to want to use something like cannabis in the first place. What have you seen that's been effective, like from a long-term perspective? Like, is there things that you've seen your patients that they do like on a consistent basis, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis that have helped them abstain from using cannabis to deal with the risk factors? Yeah. So th this is, again, very personal because that for many of them, the reason why they gain to cannabis in the first place are different. But say one of the most common is the peer group, the social network. So there might be in a social network where, you know, they come out of hospital and most of their friends use so one of the things we do, uh, well, the, the journey, and this is common to any substance of abuse, the journey to, to make a change to a habit is a, is a journey where the core element is to learn how harmful and what are the consequences you pay if you give in your craving or if you give in the social pressure of using that substance and so on. So in my case, going back to my example of alcohol, I learned in my years of uh, 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 university and, and, and postgrad where going to the pub and drinking was part of what you do for fun, that, you know, I would get sick. And so after a while of getting sick, I realized that there was not much gain for me. So for my patient, it's about doing the journey where they learn going back in time as well, that every time they have restated the cannabis use, they pay the high price of ending in hospital uh, and on on medication at a level where they experience side effect and uh, and, and and a variety of, of of adverse consequences to their to the health, broke up relationship, drop out of studies, lost job, and so on. So this is a very common narrative that you would do in any work with substance misuse, particularly with the young group we see where the peer environment is important. We do lots of role play. So, which is quite fun. So where they sort of, uh, with the therapist, uh, they imagine the situation where they find themselves with their friends and their friends roll a joint and they give them a joint and say, come on, it's only a joint. And, uh, and so for them doing lots of this role play and gaining confidence in being able to be honest and say, look, you know, I, I know you enjoy cannabis and fine, great that you haven't come to any harm. But for me, this has meant going to hospital, as you know, several times. So I'm happy to hang about with you, but I'd rather not don't get part for your joint. Or for some of them, it's about changing the social network, which is not, it's easier to say than to do, but it's some of the work they are prepared to do. And this is common throughout any addiction. This is about alcohol. This is about cocaine. This is about any any drug. But and I'm not an expert in addiction, and so I work in collaboration with Mayuan Anonymous. Mayuan Anonymous does a spectacular work in supporting people in everyday life, even people with psychosis in not going back to um, to their use. And the other thing we do, we provide lots of psychoeducation. So we do a peer group on Zoom, and I'll invite you uh, when we start again in the autumn because we're on summer break. We do a peer group on Zoom every Tuesday from 4 to 5 UK time where we have invited some of the experts that you, I know you've been in touch, we have invited Yasmin Hurd, Cyril D'Souza, many people from California, from UK, around the corner from where I work, Robin, my husband, to come and talk about cannabis, cannabis and psychosis. 
And we have come into this peer group, the people that attend the clinic and people with cannabis and psychosis that are receiving care throughout the trust. And they listen to all of these and they get into a discussion, they get a chance to ask their questions and they make up their mind about uh, the link between the two rather than being told what to do. And then if they decide to embark in a journey of change, it's their choice. I don't know if we touched on like the mechanism in which cannabis causes psychosis. I know we talked about the, the elevated THC content. We talked about dopamine. We talked about different risk factors. But what is it about cannabis? Like, What does it do to the brain that causes psychosis? Is it that it attaches to like the dopamine receptor and it just gives the, the brain in, in a massive rush of dopamine and that leads to psychosis? Like, What is it about it specifically that leads to that? It is much more complex than, for instance, for substances like amphetamine or methamphetamine, where you have a direct interference with the dopamine system. So if you take amphetamine or methamphetamine, you would actually increase suddenly the dopamine release and availability of dopamine via the dopamine transporter and the dopamine receptor. Cannabis does not have a direct uh, impact on neither the dopamine receptor or the dopamine transporter. Cannabis compounds that we know what they're up to, and particularly in this case, THC. What we do know is that THC binds the endocannabinoid receptor, both 1 and 2, so CB1, CB1 and CB2 receptor. Now, the endocannabinoid receptors are part of a system called the endocannabinoid system, which develops with the brain from very early stages uh, of uh, uh, of the brain development before uh, before birth, and it has a very important role. Not only the brain, but I'm going to talk about the brain primarily, because it's a protective system by which we produce our own endocannabinoids. So we produce compounds that bind to the CB1 and the CB2, and in the brain regulates the release of two main neurotransmitter, GABA and glutamate. And what you want to know about GABA and glutamate is that one is the accelerator of the brain, which is glutamate, and the other is the brake of the brain, that is GABA. And they accelerate and they uh, brake on the dopamine system as well as other system. And what the endocannabinoid system does with the two compounds we produce, anandamide and 2-AG, which are endocannabinoid, is modulate the transmission of GABA and glutamate when this is needed. So endocannabinoids are not produced all the time. But say I have, I suffer hypoxia at birth, or as an adolescent, I fell off my bike and bashed my head and I have a, a brain injury. At this point, the brain, the neurons will release endocannabinoid and the endocannabinoid will modulate GABA and glutamate release to allow the brain to compensate for, for the hypoxia and for the brain trauma to do with my, me falling off the brain. So it is a system which is considered neuroprotective because it's activated on demand when there is a mechanic or, if you like, a chemical injury to or threat to the brain. So what THC does is that it binds to the same receptor. So is a, a agonist partial agonist to the CB1 receptor, which means that it sits on it, blocks it, but at the same time stimulates it and is more has got more affinity than our own endocannabinoid. So if we're smoking THC, uh, THC binds this receptor and doesn't allow an andamide of 2-AG to bind the receptor and work in the way they normally do to protect the brain. But more importantly, they alter the uh, production of GABA and glutamate. Now, because GABA and glutamate downstream, they regulate cannabis release, what happens is that you have a dysregulation of dopamine. So it's a very complex fine-tuning which cannabis disrupts, which is why it's very rare that people have a joint and blomp into a very acute psychotic episode like you have for methamphetamine and and, uh, and amphetamine, unless they are particularly probably biologic, biologically very sensitive, is a more subtle process than one of developing paranoia. And often he's interplays with other risk factors and the surrounding environment. So it's a quite complex story. 
but it's a story of disrupting a wonderfully fine-tuning system, which is the endocannabinoid system, which is there to protect our brain functioning. I want to talk about um, some limitations. I saw like there was the the paper or you published something, I think it was in The Lancet, and you, there were some people that responded to you about like the causation of high potency and psychosis. And they were kind of pointing out that maybe there were some limitations and that maybe there could have been some other causes. And I would just love to maybe just hear you kind of respond to that in that, you know, what are some limitations in some of the the research that you do do? What would you like to see more of? And like, why do you strongly believe that there is this, this high risk between, or this high correlation between cannabis and psychosis? So first of all, I don't believe that because of my own research, because that'd be very grandiose and narrow-minded. I believe it because of all the research that has preceded my own work and the one that has followed it. So I think that's important to say that, to to have some, well, to, to, to believe that something has some evidence, you need many evidence and many replications from independent study. And this has been happening in cannabis for the last 10 years. In terms of my research, what I responded in particularly, the point you're raising was people saying, how can you believe that 30% or 50% of new cases of psychosis are attributable to high-potency cannabis? And that's a particular analysis which calculates the, the attributable fraction. Now, the attributable fraction of uh, uh, risk factors is exactly what the word says, is the proportion of new cases of a disease, whatever is the disease, that can be attributed to a risk factor when there's been enough evidence to associate this risk factor with the disease. So for smoking tobacco, you can calculate what is the attributable uh, proportion of risk to do with smoking tobacco, which doesn't mean that smoking tobacco is the only cause of lung cancer, for instance. It's telling you that which proportion that risk factors play. So what we wanted to do was to see if we could calculate which proportion was attributable to cannabis of the new cases of psychosis that would develop in a specific geographical area, which was the one of the sites of our study. And that, again, doesn't mean that you're going to say that in that 30% or 50% for Amsterdam, cannabis was the solo risk factors, but it means that for 50% of people, cannabis was the additional risk factors that determined the people to develop psychotic disorder. And again, an analogy is myocardial infarct. You know, you can have hypertension, you can be overweight, and you can have genetic predisposition. And we do know in medicine that you might need all the three of them to develop the myocardial infarct, and you can remove the genetic predisposition. But if you treat the hypertension and you get people to lose some weight, you might prevent the myocardial infarct. And you can calculate the attributable uh, risk factor for proportion for uh, each of them and then decide which risk factors you want to target. In my case, I was interested in seeing which was the proportion attributable to cannabis and say, well, if we abolish cannabis for this particular population, high-potency cannabis, you can prevent 30%, which means that for those 30%, cannabis was the one that pushed them over the threshold of developing the condition. That doesn't mean that these people didn't have other risk factors, but cannabis was the modifiable one you could have an impact on. And this is something that with a different design and a different population has been looked at in Denmark, in the Danish courts, and they've come to similar uh, conclusion and, and also in, uh, uh, in, in other studies from the Netherlands. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And that totally makes sense. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, because I want to be mindful of your time, is you've obviously looked at a lot of research, you've conducted a lot of research in yourself, looked at meta-analysis of, of stuff with cannabis. Do you think that based on the way that it's going, it's time that we start taking, you call it cannabis, we call it marijuana here, as seriously as other harder substances like cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and stuff like that? I think we need to take cannabis or marijuana seriously as we have taken not just other drugs like, uh, I guess, as you say, harder drugs, but even, if you like, softer drugs like alcohol and, uh, and, and tobacco in a way of doing what you're doing. 
giving people information. So what upsets me is that often the debate is polarized. So it's all about making cannabis evil or saying that cannabis is uh, absolutely wonderful, is a plant, is entirely safe and all this stuff. I think it is important to give people data and information. And then, as I have learned myself by drinking alcohol, people can learn that if they use marijuana and some of what you and I discuss has the psychological negative effect of cannabis are experienced, they are able to recognize them and they're able to make a decision to say, hold on, should I really risk a chance of ending with a mental disorder which has a very heavy impact on life trajectory, even when it's reversible because you being psychotic is not a pleasant experience if you end up in a mental hospital? Or could I ask some help to understand if that's where I'm heading? And maybe I can try myself and make some changes in my use and see if these changes in the way I'm thinking, I'm perceiving reality, my reverse. So it's about giving people power to make choices on their health and on their life trajectory. And I think Australia is doing a fantastic work on public education in school on cannabis. I can send you a link of a wonderful program where they've done interactive videos of young people talking about their experience of cannabis, the effects, they destigmatize uh, some of what we have talked in terms of not describing them as symptoms, but experiences. But by saying, look, guys, if you get this when you use cannabis, maybe it's not it's not a good idea because there are some risks associating with that. You might end dropping out of school and losing your chance of, of getting on with, with, with your dreams and, and, and your expectation. Similar things that have been done for alcohol and impact on youth or for tobacco and general impact on, on health. So I really like to see government taking public education safe, seriously uh, for young people and across the life spectrum. And then people can make their, their, their choices. And the other thing I would like to see is more resources for those people who do come to harm because today was another, every other day I get an email from parents saying my son became psychotic on cannabis. I don't know where to get help from him or her because they're not specialized services uh, for people who develop psychosis in the context of, of cannabis use. And so for me, these are the two priorities, helping people to make an informed choice and, and and disentangle marketing and advertising around cannabis. And for people who come to harm, having a chance to receive specialized help to change a life round because it's a reversible process. One of the other things I wanted to make sure we cover really quick, because I think people panic when they are listening to stuff like this, is that can their brain heal? Like I, you, I, I heard a lot as a kid that you know, pot destroys your brain, marijuana destroys your brain. And if you smoke it, like you're not going to be as smart as you were. And, and I definitely felt stunted emotionally and mentally for a period of time because of my excessive drug use. And now you're, you're sharing that the marijuana and cannabis today is much more potent than it was, you know, 20 years ago when I was using it. Based on what you've seen with your patients and even in some research, like, do you believe that people's brains can heal after they stop? I mean, I, I believe that the brain can heal after me most brain insults, not just cannabis. So I think we are learning more and more about brain plasticity. And I do think that in relation to cannabis, if you remove cannabis out of the equation, people can indeed get on with their life and function well and, 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 and succeed. The problem is that sometimes, depending how long the experience of clinical psychosis, and again, I'm not talking about transient psychotic symptoms and come and go when you're intoxicated. I talk about people who end in a psychiatric hospital with a full-blown clinical psychosis. That experience per se is a you know is a traumatic experience and and is a traumatic experience emotionally but also for the biology of of the brain and so depending how severe your psychosis has been and how long this puts you out of action and when I say out of action, I mean say you are a young person in the middle of taking your final exam and you end with a big psychotic episode for a year or even two years. And you're left behind your peers 
and you have to go back and do your exam. It's a very hard process to go back and rebuild your life. Some people can do it. Not everybody can. And so you don't know if you're going to be one of those people who has the resources to rise to the challenge of being left behind your peers, having to rebuild your social networks, perhaps going back to education and so on. And so my message is, do you really want to risk that? Even if I tell you that you can actually do it because not everybody has the resources to do it. So I see young people thriving. You know, they stop the cannabis, go back to where they left. And I see people that even the psychosis has gone, they are stuck in a sort of middle, low level of functioning for quite a long time before they can go back to where they should be because of their age and their potential. Marta, thank you so much for all sharing all of your knowledge, your research, your wisdom on the subject of cannabis and marijuana. You mentioned um, Marijuana Anonymous as a resource for people. Where What are some other good, good resources for parents and people who are potentially struggling or being impacted by cannabis addiction that you think people should check out? So Marijuana Anonymous, if, if you are cannabis you are a user and you want to share your experience with other people or if you decided to stop and you need some help to stay abstinent. Uh, but then there are resources, and particularly in the States, like uh, the uh, Johnny Ambassador uh, charity run by Laura Starks, who was the mom of Johnny, who sadly lost his life uh, following a psychosis associated with cannabis. And she has created a huge resource for parents and carers particularly, and uh, lots of broadcast. And uh, I would uh, uh, I would certainly look that up. And, uh, and also there is uh, uh, Talk to Frank, which again is an online resource where you can find lots of information about cannabis use. And these tend to be, although they are coming from the experience of people who have had adverse effects, they tend to have a balanced view and also bring together, uh, especially the Mayuan Anonymous, I guess, the experience of people who have been very keen on cannabis and where cannabis has played a huge role in their life. So they're not stigmatizing resources and they, they do appreciate also the, the, the good size of the good, the good side, the potential beneficial side of, uh, of, of cannabis. And I'm trying to think. So these are the resources. Oh, and then. Uh, but I will have to send you the link because I can't remember on top of my mind. There is a Canadian researcher who has an Instagram page where she particularly shares sort of uh, uh, data and evidence and she makes them palatable to the general public on the topic of cannabis and mental health. And she has done some research on cannabis and mental health and she's doing a trial on a digital resource to support people in reducing or stopping the cannabis. So I can send you a name and you can look up her Instagram page, which is public. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, um, Marta. I really appreciate it. I will be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes um, of the episode, as well as the link to um, your professional page. And I just wanted to thank you again for coming on here and, and sh sharing so much. And I think the audience is really going to enjoy this. Thank you for having me.